0: Hello and welcome to episode number 461 of Smart Podcast Trashy Books. I am Sarah Wendell. Today, Catherine and I are chatting with Lois McMaster-Bujold. This is one of those episodes where I am so excited, I barely contain myself. We both read the newest Penric and Desdemona book, The Assassins of Thassalon. And if you like the Penric and Desdemona books as much as we do, you will really like this episode. We are going to talk about the origin story of Penric and Desdemona, and about how her retirement partially rests on self-publishing. We also talk about how much manga she's reading and watching, plus we have tons of recommendations. Thank you to our Patreon community for making the transcript for this episode possible, and to Laura G., Francine, Jamie, and Agnes for the questions. If you would like to be part of our Patreon community, find out when I'm doing interviews, suggest questions, or just support the work that we're doing. Have a look at patreon.com slash Monthly pledges start at $1, and every pledge keeps the show going, and make sure that every episode is accessible. Thank you, Patreon community. I deeply appreciate your support. This podcast is brought to you in part by Osea. One thing I have been enjoying in the quarantine is taking more attentive care of my skin. And since, heads up all of you who play trivia, your skin is your largest organ, it's important to take care of all of it. Osea helps you give your skin all the attention it deserves. Osea's Undaria Algae Body Oil is wonderfully moisturizing, and it replenishes dry skin instantly. Osea soaks hand-harvested Undaria Algae in barrels of oils for up to six months, and the result is liquid gold. It is a rich, luxurious, never-greasy body oil, fragrant with sunny citrus, and top notes of sweet passion fruit. Now, I could not have told you the specific notes of the smell, but I can tell you, I love the scent of this body oil. I love putting it on and I just sit there and just enjoy how good it smells. It is so lovely. It is not greasy. It is never never sticky. It is such a nice treat for myself. And I recommend that you give yourself a treat as well. You can try Osea risk-free for 30 days and get free shipping on orders over $50, They even send free samples with every order. Get 10% off your first order with my promo code Sarah at OseaMalibu.com. That's 10% off with code Sarah, S-A-R-A-H, at OseaMalibu, O-S-E-A-M-A-L-I-B-U.com. This episode is also brought to you by Ritual, a vegan-friendly multivitamin delivered to your door that is formulated with high-quality nutrients in bioavailable forms your body can actually use. I like knowing what's in my vitamins and I like knowing what is not in my vitamins ritual publishes the supply chain of each ingredient in the packaging, which is not something I hadn't thought much about, but I appreciate knowing they also share how some of their ingredients were developed to be vegan friendly. The result is that ritual does not contain sugars, GMOs, major allergens, synthetic fillers, or artificial colorants. I also like that it doesn't make me feel nauseated. As soon as I finish a bottle, A new one arrives. I can start, snooze, and cancel my subscription at any time. Now available for men, women, and teens, Ritual multivitamins are scientifically developed to help support life at different stages. Get key nutrients without the BS. Ritual is offering my listeners 10% off during your first three months. Visit ritual.com forward slash Sarah to start your ritual today. This episode is also brought to you by Way. That's O-U-A-I. They have an absolutely fabulous detox shampoo that I must tell you about. Taking really good care of my hair and changing how I care for it has made a massive difference in how I start my day, especially in the quarantines when it was one of the few things I could do every day because I didn't leave the house. Since I am a person who loves to hit the reset button, whether I'm decluttering a drawer because I'm feeling cranky or I'm slowing down to pay attention to how I do something, I'm always curious about options that will help me streamline my process. Way Detox Shampoo is some clarifying wonderfulness. Now, I've tried a bunch of different products in my hair to try to make it wavy. Some of them worked great, but after a while, you know that buildup feeling? The Way Detox Shampoo completely gets rid of all of the buildup. It smells so lovely and my hair felt so soft and not at all dry or fragile. I followed up with a Way Super Rich Conditioner and I spritzed on a leave in conditioner that made my hair super soft and wavy, just how I like it. And Way's line of products are cruelty free, sulfate free, and paraben free. All the stuff I was told I needed to avoid. Woohoo! When you're ready to undo some damage, hit the reset button with Way Detox Shampoo. Go to theway.com and use code SPTB. To get 15% off your entire purchase, that's T-H-E-O-U-A-I dot com code S-P-T-B. In the show notes, I will have links to all of the books we talk about, and if you're looking to try some of Lois McMaster-Bujold's work, I will have links to the first books in just about all of her series, and I will have links to all of the manga and books that she recommends as well. But let's get started with my conversation with Catherine and Lois McMaster-Bujold. On with the podcast.
1: My name is Lois McMaster Bujold. I'm a science fiction and fantasy writer. I've been publishing since the mid 1980s, which is beginning to be kind of a long time ago now. Um, yes. I have three or four series, uh, one blown standalone book. And I can go on about them at length. Um, and that uh, that has brought me up to uh, whatever year this is, 2021.
0: I don't know what year it is either. <laughs> now, Catherine. Yes. Now it is time for the
2: squeeing. <laughs> Would you like to lead off with the squee? Yes. So um, when, when Sarah asked if I'd like to help interview you, Lois, my reaction was more or less, no Um, because i was pretty excited (laughs) i've been reading your book since the early 90s and in fact your mailing list was how i met the internet um back in 2001 or so or 2000 mailing list has been going for a long time it has. It has. And I've still got lots of friends from there. Some of them I've actually met in person, mm-hmm. um, even stayed with when I've been travelling. I haven't met any of the US crew yet, but
1: it's... I know, know of at least one marriage, the result of it.
2: I know. <laughs> I know. i as far as I know. I think, I think my, my internet experience has been much happier because of where I started it, and that's down to you. And of course, I also adore your books. So, yeah.
1: Now the great advantage of writing comedies of manners is that you get fans who are into manners. Yeah, <laughs> that helps.
0: <laughs> so I love have, that. You have a marriage that in, that originated in your mailing list.
1: Yeah, romance marriage. Yeah, they've got kids. <laughs> this was a long time ago. I
0: I love everything ah. about this. I did not know email could do that, but now I I don't doubt
1: it. <laughs> <laughs> it took a while, yeah. and then meetings all around the world, and many things. <laughs> it was fun to watch.
0: So congratulations on the release of The the Assassins of Thassalon. Mm-hmm. Um, I have been reading and listening to the Penrick series. So I have to ask, is the same narrator going to return for the audiobook? Uh, this is
1: so new that it's only just been submitted to the audiobooks company. So we don't have a contract yet or any information. Fingers crossed. Uh, presumably they will take it, um, but, uh, but it is too soon to make.
0: You soon to make that call?
1: Projections, yeah, about what's going to happen or when.
0: Now, I know that summarizing your books can be a bit tricky for you, mm. but what will readers find in The Assassins of Thassalon? But if you would prefer oh. Catherine and I to summarize it for you, we can do that.
1: Uh, well, let's do both. Okay. Um, my problem, well, first of all, I, I always freeze up when people ask me to describe my work because there's so much to say. It's the a whole <laughs> novel. Yeah. Um, and the other thing is, Reflecting on it, the answer changes with who's asking the question, who's listening.
0: That's true. Uh,
1: it depends on if it's a person who you know, knows the series, in which case all I have to say is, this picks up some threads left at the end of The Prisoner of Limnos, and they're right on board, and they know what to expect. Uh, and if it's someone who's never read a old book, uh, they'll go, huh? You know, it's like listening to people talk about people you don't know at a party. <laughs> you get off onto the characters. This is a uh, part of the fantasy series, started back in the uh, 20 years ago now uh, with a book called The Curse of Chalion. And I wrote three books for HarperCollins uh, that was all set in this what eventually became called the world of the Five Gods. It was back in the in the mid well, about 2015, so mid whatever we're calling that decade. I thought myself of, of a character I wanted to explore, and he just fit right into this world. So I had a world, I had a character, I put them together, all of a sudden I had critical mass. So I wanted to do a independently indie e-published series of novellas. No harm, no foul, you know, no no deadline, no publisher. Uh, and I so I wanted to write a story that was in, of novella length to experiment, to see if I could do an independent e-book. I'd had indie published reprints of prior books out for years by that time. So there are several things going on. I wanted to write that. I wanted to write a novella-length story. Um, And I wanted to have the fun of working with a really powerful sorcerer uh, in a fantasy world. Uh, Having decided I would use the world of the five gods, uh, a whole lot of prefab world building came with, which made it easier for me. (laughs) Uh, Constrained, containerized, you know, what, what kind of magic you would have and how it would work. Uh, and I got to thinking about him. Uh, my original vision of him was in his 30s, 40s, older older guy, um, powerful and assured and, and all that stuff. And I got to thinking about, why well, don't start at the beginning? Because I had discovered when writing other series that jumping over material in between kind of closed off possibilities and development. Mm-hmm. I wrote him all the way back to where he started as a sorcerer, which is a whole other story. And that became the novella, Penricks, Demon. It was going to be a standalone. It was all there was at that time. But they kept on trucking. And uh, there had been subsequently uh, altogether nine novellas. And the 10th started out to be a novella, but it turned out to be a novel because there was just too much material. And that became The Assassins of Thassalon. Trying to tell people, yeah, how and where to start is tough. I think it would work as a standalone, but I did not have anyone to test it on. So I haven't had any feedback yet from somebody who's read it independently of all the other, other books. That's going to be an interesting question. I hope somebody pops up soon you know, who has that experience and can tell me what it was.
0: Well, I can tell you that as a person who has read all of the novellas, but also as a person with a terrible memory, mm-hmm. um, I might be a mediocre test subject. <laughs> and I think it works as a standalone because... Okay. Both Penrick and Desdemona both fill in what's been going on mm-hmm. and make references to things that have happened, but everything yeah. that is happening is contained within the story in a way yes. that
1: it is, is a complete story in itself. It has a yes. beginning, middle and end. It does not, you know, it's not part one of anything.
0: No, there's part no two
1: of anything. There's no homework. Penrick in the course of the thing ends up teaching another person I a lot that. about it. And that gave me a great opportunity to do the, you know, the newbie, you know, Give the newbie tutorial again without it (laughs) being repeated. That's always a problem with uh, fantasy work, because you're not only presenting the characters; you're presenting the world, and the world is, in effect, another character. You read if you're the kind of reader I suspect we three all are. We read for character. We read because we want to learn who these people are and what makes them tick, particularly in romances, but mysteries as well and other things. Um, so you know, if a mystery doesn't end up giving you the characters by the end with some understanding of them. It's it's not very satisfying. Well, in science fiction and fantasy, the world is like another character. You expect to be learn about it uh, just as you would learn about the hero or the heroine of a, of a story. If you're writing a series, you've kind of got to reintroduce that world
2: character every time, the same, only different. So that's the thing. One of the things, um, Lois, that I, I really love about the Penric and Desdemona books is that Penric is just this fundamentally kind, accepting person, and that's almost his superpower. I, I get mm-hmm. the feeling that the reason he can do so much with Desdemona is because he has that native kindness, that tenderness. You know, mm-hmm. that's of Desdemona as a person. And I'd love to know more about how Penric evolved for you as a character. What did you know about him at the start and? How
1: did he grow from there? Uh-huh. Yeah. Okay. This this gets back to our world building again and how the magic works in this world. We have a world with five gods. Uh, they are ineffable. <laughs> They're much larger than human. Uh, they are entities whom effectively upon death, the soul joins with them uh, in sort of like union with the Godhead as the the old actual theological phrase has it. Um so it's it's kind of important because for life after death of the only game in town, uh, the magic in the world uh, stems from either the gods or the fundamental structure of the world. Uh, there's a whole subset of magic, which I call shamanism, which works through uh, the development of magical animals. And then the, uh, the main line of magic are what I call the sorcerers. And you become a sorcerer. Uh, by contracting or being possessing or being possessed by one of the fifth god's uh, chaos demons, uh, so this is a particular kind of magic. It has a trend uh, it is it is chaotic and destructive, but you know destruction yes. can be used for creative purposes if it's you know properly channeled and understood and controlled. So the uh, temple of the world, uh, the fifth God's order. Uh, we have the, the five gods, the mother, the father, the son, the daughter, and the bastard. The bastard is, is the god of, uh, of these demons. Um, they all kind of belong to him. And on, upon that, uh, actually, the plot of the Assassin's Creed turns. So they are released into the world um, as little blobs of unformed chaos. They take up with an animal or a person, and they begin to absorb the personality or be imprinted by the personality of whatever creature they've they've paired up with. So every demon in this world is different the way every person is different, because they all have a different experience, they have a different upbringing. uh, And at the end of their person's life, they can jump to another person so that they begin to pick up multiple lives the longer they are in the world. Um, So the thing about Penric is that uh, back in Penric's Demon, the first story, uh, he contracted a demon from a very experienced temple sorceress who was dying on the road whom he stopped to help. And her demon has the imprint of 10 women uh, going back two centuries. So all of a sudden he has this onboard AI full of opinions um, <laughs> you know, and powers, you know, which he can, you know, which he can access, but, you know, but she's quite powerful and in, in her own right. So he has to you know learn how you know, learn how best to uh, best to deal with her. demons do not have gender or sex. they are formless chaos when they start they pick that up as social learning. so this one having been in a succession of ten women has a very feminine personality. Uh, so we, we call her her. Among her many gifts besides a number of magical powers um, are all the languages that her prior writers uh, had known. Uh, so that all came <laughs> to Penn. Yeah, that, was, that was, for me, who only speaks one language, that was wish fulfillment. You know? <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs> so there we go. So when I started I start off with the idea of Henrik, and then he contracts a demon, and then I had to sit down and think about, okay, what's this demon? What is her biography going on back all the way? Because who she is is going to depend on who she was uh, through all this length of time. So in the in the first story, Penrick's Demon, I pretty much sketched her background in. So we arrived at Desdemona, whom, whom Penrick names in, in the course of the first story.
0: One thing I love about The Assassins of Thassalon is that early on you sort of um like point out uh Penrick's greatest strength. In the book, um Penrick thinks, oh normal people carrying on with unthinking kindness must be as shocking as sudden sunlight. And I was like, well, um, yes, sir. After the few years that we have had, that is true. Thank you for pointing that out. I mean, that's yeah. one of the reasons why the Penrick and Desdemona series is such a comfort read for me because kindness is the powerful default. Was that something mm-hmm. that was conscious in your mind while you were writing? It's, it's developed. It's a thing that came up all
1: the way back. Uh, in that first Chalian novel, The Curse of Chalian, um, when Cazarell, the hero, uh, is talking to a character uh, who is asking him about some dire experiences that he had. And he says that, you know, any man can be kind when he is comfortable. Yes. <laughs> Actually, it's Bergen that says that. Um, you know, any man can be kind when he is comfortable, but when things were horrific, you were still kind. Uh, yeah. So it's like not a trivial virtue. No, no, it is not. Yeah, it gets scorned in the in the mad rush for you, whatever power power displays. Yeah,
0: it's true. Desdemona also reminds me a little bit of something that you once said about Miles or Cossigan, That one of the other characters says about Miles that he picks people up and he never puts them down again. Mm-hmm. And Desdemona yep. is kind of, the, kind of the the living embodiment of that. <laughs> she has picked up all of these imprints and has never put them down because she can't. Mm-hmm. And that she yeah. is the sum of all of her lifetimes. What a very hopeful and ponderous message. In
1: character. <laughs> well, it kind of depends on the lives you pick up. You yes. Know, some, <laughs> of, some of those 10 women are not much fun. Um, uh, Rogaska has just hated everyone and, uh, Um, Umalan had a miserable life, you know, in in large sections of it. Yeah. So all those memories are in there. Yeah. So it's, it's a mixed bag.
0: And it's, it's a wonderful twist on forced proximity. Mm -hmm. Like I'm a big sucker for forced proximity and romance. I love a good Uh snowstorm. Like, I mean, you're from the Midwest, right? Like no one. no bound cabin. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Like if you have heat and food you're not in imminent danger. You can just, you know, you can chill. You can go to bone town if you want to, but you're good. Like it's, you're not in imminent danger. It's not like it's a hurricane or a big storm. It's just, it's snow. It's annoying and you need to stay where you are. With with Desmond and Penrick, there's forced proximity of his brain. <laughs> in his head. Yes. He's got like a team of aunties in his head all the time.
1: Yeah. I guess, yeah, the, the imprint goes up to the point where the writer or the the sorceress, the previous sorceress dies. So he's got, you know, these lives of older women uh, in his head uh, with all that that entails in terms of opinions yes, <laughs> uh, this... and experiences.
0: Catherine, this is a perfect time for your question.
2: I was thinking that, yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, so one thing I've noticed in this series is that, you know, you have several sets of characters with unusual relationship structures, sort of triads, really. You've got, obviously, Penn and Dez and Nicky a sort of a triad of sorts. Tana and Bosher and Adelis in this, we see a bit more. I'm wondering, was that a conscious choice to sort of start exploring relationships in this way?
1: Um, I don't think it was. Um, You know, if you you look at, you know, if you went in and sort of did a statistical analysis of all the characters, hundreds by now, of my work, you know, that wouldn't be, I don't think that there would be noticeably a lot of these, but they're more noticeable. People notice the unusual against the background that is taken for granted. Uh, but yeah, for Penrick, um, you know, he's already living with basically obligate multiple personality disorder. <laughs> 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 you know? So anyone who marries him has to take the whole package or, you know, takes up with him in, in a romantic sense. And, you know, going to bed with Penrick is one thing, but going to bed with Penrick and these 10 other women in his head, uh, is a bit of a challenge, you know, for most anyone. It's just why his romances never, yeah, he kept trying, but they never prospered. But Nikki's was kind of pre-adapted for him, because her mother um, was part of a polygamous relationship, which is, you know, bog standard historically, nobody questions it. It's, you know, when you have a woman with two husbands, that's odd, but a man with two wives, is like historically normal. Uh, so that was household she came out of and it was a happy household you know the two wives got along great Uh, so her experience of that was uh, positive Mm -hmm. so the idea of having to share Henrik with another woman was not so bad because she's not even a physical woman she's not going to have other children Uh, you know so from her Sidonian viewpoint you know it looks pretty good
0: and you know, one of one of Desdemona's past writers was a courtesan, so Henrik's going to know what's up.
1: Oh yes, he does. <laughs> we don't go into that because yeah, everything is fade to black. But I invite you to use your imaginations.
0: Oh, believe me, we did. <laughs> yes, that was uh, awesome. not a not a problem.
1: He is very expert. One of the things I never got to go into in the stories was uh, what he was doing in his twenties when he was in Martinsbridge, because as a Divine of the Bastard, uh, basically a kind of priest, uh, which he became after he got the demon and got the theological education that was required to go with it. Um, one of his many duties is looking after uh, prostitutes of the town, uh, both spiritually and medically, right. which meant he made friends. Um, and this was like very good for him for a while. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, so, yeah, so he is, he is not not uneducated.
0: Bless his heart. Yeah.
1: <laughs> so so any woman who gets him is going to be very lucky, but she's gonna to have to have to deal with Desdemona.
2: Well yes, I, I feel that getting Desdemona's full approval would be would be difficult, you know. Mm-hmm. It's like all yeah, family-
1: that's another thing, you know, she's she's got this kind of editorial comment going on all the time. If she doesn't like what he's taken up with, she will make her opinions known.
0: <laughs> And I love how as the series progresses, more of the other characters acknowledge Desdemona as a separate person and acknowledge Mm -hmm. and greet her and say, how are you? I trust you are well. And what does Desdemona think? And would you introduce her? Like she is treated as a separate entity. Are you two coming to bed? Yes. I. Okay. I could not tell you how much I love that. Like.
2: (coughs) kiss kiss. Alice's (laughs) demon in law. That was so sweet. Demon-in-law.
0: Oh my God. Yeah. One of the things that Catherine brought up that I think is so interesting is that even though this is a very kind series, you have some um you have some nefarious plans for your characters, generally speaking.
2: Catherine? (laughs) Yes, I was. I think I was talking to Sarah. I remember back back in in the boujou of mailing list days, so a long time ago for me. You used to talk about you know when you're writing books, you think about what's the worst possible thing I can do to these characters, um, and that they only get one good coincidence a book, and but as many bad coincidences as you like. I might be remembering that slightly coincidences. wrong. Coincidences, <laughs> yeah.
1: Good and bad coincidences per book. One good coincidence, rest
2: Yeah, the day. yeah. and I was wondering if that's shifted a bit because I feel like the bastards thumbs on the scales a bit here, and they're having a bit more pleasant luck, I don't
1: know. <laughs> <laughs> Ambiguous luck because that's the nature of their God. but uh, but yeah, I'm very glad you asked that question because it is the line has been much, much quoted and much misunderstood out of context.
0: Oh, interesting. And I'm
1: grateful for a chance to try to you know, it's the internet. Nuance hey, hey. never flies, but let's try. Um, what I was trying to get at with that statement was something about how plot and character have to fit together. Uh, for a particular character, there's a particular quintessential plot that explores that character most beautifully, completely, the way you want, you know, shows you what you want to learn about him or her or it, uh, depending because science fiction sometimes. Rather than, you know, saying what's the worst thing I can do to this character, I think it might be better recast as what is the most revealing thing I can do to this character. i see. Yeah. Um, so it's it's meant to be you know this this is the scalpel by which we lay them open you know the plot is plot is what you use to you know do exploratory surgery on a character for every character there will be a different different most revealing thing right it uh, changes with every character uh, so it, it's not you know it's not an invitation to pile on horrors. Uh, no, you know, do terrible things to your characters or pointless character torture.
2: No, no,
0: no, um,
1: no. You know, that is not what that was, what I was trying to get to. And yet, you know, when it gets out, you know, three quotes down the line, that's what people interpret it to mean. And it's not what I was trying to say. So there we go. What is the most revealing thing that I can do to this character? And that is where your plot, you know, will lie.
0: That makes a lot more sense rather than let us remove the entrails of our character slowly with a spoon. <laughs> Yeah, sometimes that's
1: you know that's that a works. thing yeah but not you know not necessarily
0: i don't see penrick with a spoon going all right let's go <laughs> we will be right back with more of our conversation with lois mcmaster Bujold. but first wilbur my feline assistant audio engineer and demander of food would like me to tell you about pretty litter He'd also like the birds that are nesting in my hanging baskets to come hang out near the window, but they're not going to do that. They're very busy. Wilbur allows me to share his room, which I thought was my office, and it's great to have company all day except for the part where his litter box is right there, like right there, like three feet away. But thanks to Pretty Litter, this is not a problem. Pretty Litter is kitty litter reinvented. Unlike traditional litter, Pretty Litter's super light crystals trap odor and release moisture, resulting in a dry, low maintenance litter that doesn't smell. And Pretty Litter is virtually dust free because it's manufactured with a special de-dusting process. Pretty Litter arrives safely at my door in a small lightweight bag that lasts up to a month. Now that I get litter bags auto-shipped, I don't have to deal with last minute trips to the store and I don't have a massively heavy bag to carry up from the car, Plus, shipping is free. But above all else, here's why Pretty Litter is a pet parent's hero. It's a health indicator. Pretty Litter monitors my cat's health by changing colors when it detects potential underlying issues. You will not find that kind of innovation in conventional litter. Get the world's smartest kitty litter without leaving home by visiting prettylitter.com and use promo code TRASHY for 20% off your first order. That's prettylitter.com, promo code TRASHY for 20% off. Prettylitter.com, promo code TRASHY. And now back to our conversation with Lois McMaster Bouchold. Now, I have some questions for you from my Patreon community. Sometimes I will let them know I'm doing an interview. Would you like to ask a question? Would you like something (coughs) you'd like to share? So the reverberation of excitement might have registered and some sensitive computer equipment when I said that I was interviewing with you. People were very excited. So I have a few questions from them. Laura G. wanted wanted me to tell you that she loves the worlds that you create and wants to know, how does it feel when ideas you had like lab-grown meat and uterine replicators start to become real possibilities in today's world? Do you ever look at that happening and think, all right, well, I'm going to Play the lottery today, because seems I'm good at this. <laughs> uh, the uh,
1: both those examples are not things I made up; they were like already common furniture in the science fiction genre. Uh, uterine replicators go back at least to Aldous Huxley in 1932 with Brave New World. Wow! Uh, but he he would use them basically as a metaphor for the British class system, which is not what I do with them at all. You know, you take the technology and do something else with it. You know? Uh, bat meat. the idea of bat meat has been around forever. Um, there've been all kinds of stories about it. Uh, so that's, you know, that was, that is just, you know, genre furniture, <laughs> uh, but what you do with it, you know, you arrange it, uh, and you know, the rest of the decor is what, what makes it work. Um. Uh, but yeah, so, uh, so I don't think that I am the source of the real world development of these things because you know, it's all over the place. It's, it's, in, the, it's in the zeitgeist. You know. People yeah. are picking, <laughs> picking up the ideas. I, I think with respect to the uterine replicators, I have explored them more thoroughly and from more angles than any prayer writer who tends to, particularly male writers, tend to use them as a kind of a throwaway thing to get out of having to deal with all that messy biology. Chickens so yeah uh so it's it's fascinating to watch it's you know some of it is coming along faster than i thought it would which is good because i'll get to see it <laughs> yeah, i'm kind of interested uh, but i did not i cannot claim the invention of either of those two ideas
0: right francine asked me to pass along that um You've worked with traditional publishers and with the Penrick series, you've been self-publishing. What advantages do you see in self-publishing as an author? And is there a reason why Penrick and De- Desdemona worked better as a self-published series? She also asked that I say, uh, thank you for all your wonderful worlds. They are compulsively readable. And whenever I need to go somewhere else for a while, your books are the perfect vehicle. Can uh, confirm. That is
1: that is good. Yeah. My- my ideal is somebody finding my books, something they can read while sitting in a hospital waiting room. You know? Yes. Like, you know, that's that that is service.
0: Between Penrick and MurderBot, that's how I got through
1: 2020. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> anyway, um, so yes, yeah, see, the question was again, <laughs> self publishing. Self publishing. Oh yeah, I could go on at length. How much do you want? Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm uh, Became interested in self-publishing way back in 2010 when my agent uh, in New York attended a, a conference given by Amazon to literary agents. They were trying to get you know content for their this new thing, the Kindle program. Most of my work at that time was tied up in publisher contracts, but I had a couple of loose novellas that we could try. The literary agency helped me do all the technical stuff. You know, I provided manuscript. And she did the you know, learned how to put them up. we figured out how to do covers. You know, it's kind of the blind leaving the blind. And they did pretty well. You know, they were doing a lot better as ebooks than the you know, teeny tiny amounts they were making as paper books because you know, they were all out of print oh. or off the market. Um, and I thought, that looks pretty good. Let's try some more of this. Most of my all of my books were available to be in the UK. I had uh, British rights. <clears throat> so I sort of spent half a year going over every single one and preparing it you know for e-publication to go to the UK market which is separate from the uh US market
0: right
1: um and that was uh how I spent 2011 uh in between surgery and some other things it's a very good thing to do because uh, I wouldn't have been writing anything original at that point those went up and those were doing okay my British career had Tanked several times, and you know, I had despaired of ever selling books in Britain. But the e-books sort of made a whole end run around the entire British publishing blockage. Started to actually reach a few readers, you know, tiny handfuls but there was a lot, number of titles. <clears throat> and then uh, my main series with Bain came up for renewal at, uh, in 2012. A whole bunch of books had run out of license. It's the hardest business decision I ever made, but I decided I would retain e-rights when we renewed the paper rights wow. with them, except for they're allowed to sell off their own website uh their ebooks, their edition of the ebooks. But I've retained that yeah in the world, all the rest of the world was mine uh, for my ebooks. And so having, you know, already prepared them all for the British market the prior year, we got them up um and started selling uh and that was remarkable. I've never had a monthly paycheck before in my <laughs> whole writing career you know but yeah you know, every month you know we get collate the, the ebook royalties and they've you know they've turned out to be a living wage and then in the mid uh twenty fifteen or so, I would basically reach retirement age uh I knew I didn't want to do p r anymore or book tours or you know all the all the all the stressful things that you know some writers relish and most hate. <laughs> That, you know, involved you know, dealing with the public, dealing with the publishers, dealing with deadlines. If I just self-publish, I can write what I want, when I want, put it up or not. You know, if I don't want to finish something, I can bin it. And that looks like retirement to me. Uh, so, so that was, you know, why I tried Penrick Steeman and the many novellas that have followed. Uh, because it worked really well for, you know, for being, you know. Being retired and having Medicare uh, because I'm American and have no you know health care except uh, what I bought off the shelf when I was self employed and now uh, Medicare now that I'm past sixty five so all that came together in e publishing and it's been working really really well
0: so it came along for ah. you at almost the most almost the perfect time and now um, I haven't looked right now because it's m- evening. But Catherine, you looked earlier and said that uh, it's in the top fifty in Amazon right now, isn't it? Yeah, for
1: some reason, the second weekend after a one of these Enabella launches is always the best for sales velocity. So it actually hit number nineteen uh, on Saturday.
0: Congratulations
1: uh, for, for a whole hour. You know? It's like <laughs> mayflies, uh, but you know, enjoy it while while it happens. And, um and then it then it will settle down to you know, about the same rate of sales of all the others eventually. it stays on the shelf forever, yep. um, so it you know it doesn't go out of print, it doesn't go you know it doesn't get remaindered. it doesn't get shipped back to the publisher to be pulped. Uh, it just sits there and keeps selling to whoever falls over it. When I first started in publishing, um the received wisdom was that the shelf life of a typical mass market paperback, original paperback, which is what I was writing, was two years. So if you wanted to have enough books out on the shelves to make a living at this, you had to write really, really fast and you know, keep them coming at least a book a year. Jim Bain once told me the ideal rate was eight months, a book every eight months, which about gave me a heart attack. <laughs> um, and, uh, <laughs> no. <laughs> and I don't have to do that anymore. You know, so it's great. Oh, the other oh. thing uh, about ebooks is coming along at the right time is that they have come along just at the right time when I have uh, worsening eyesight issues on my tablet. I've got every ebook is an instant large print book,
0: oh, yes. So it's, cool. you know, so
1: at a time when my reading would have been shutting down, it is opening up instead. So,
0: yay, ebooks oh, yes. as as someone who has worn bifocals since she was two, Mm. Yes. Oh, yes. I crank the text up to what I call great grandma size. <laughs> yes, that
1: would be it. <laughs> and it is. I'm legitimately great grandma. And, and, uh, and
0: it's deeply comfortable. Uh-huh. My eyes don't hurt. Yeah. I get very cranky with anyone yeah. who tries to tell me that, you know, ebooks are, you know, just for young people. Oh, no, no, no. Oh, no, no, <laughs> no, no. I love how for you self-publishing and ebooks arrived for en- for retirement. That is just such a lovely, hopeful thing. Jamie on my Patreon wanted to know if there would be any more sharing knife books. Those are some of their favorite characters and series of yours.
1: I'm delighted to hear somebody loves the sharing knife. It tends to get stampeded over in the rush for the Vorkosrigans. And there was a great deal of distress when it first came out because it wasn't any of the other two series that my fault I had addicted people to. So, uh, and it was—it uh, was more of a romance. Uh, fact yes, it, it was. was exactly. Uh, speaking of your audience, uh, exactly an experiment in splitting the attention between the romance and the fantasy aspects of a story, uh, which sort of made it fall between two stools. But uh, so the, the not quite enough romance for the hard romance readers, and too much for the you know for the fantasy crowd. Some of the fantasy crowd, it's found its audience. So, yeah, is will there be more? There is nothing planned at this time. We've got the four novels, which are a different series structure. It's one story in four volumes, like The Lord of the Rings. You know, it isn't like the Penrick or the Vorkosigan stories, which are individual stories set in. Yeah, open-ended. Uh, in, a, in a context. And then we have the the, the Code of Silma Bell
2: on Knife Children. I like how that Knife Children just sort of, you know, tidied up a few things. So we've got another question from the Patreon. This is Agnes. Um, I think Sarah gave me this one to read because I can do the squee very convincingly because <laughs> she's <laughs> going, <laughs> one of my favourite, favourite, favourites is coming to the podcast. But that was my reaction too. Um, Agnes says that you're one of the authors who has the unique ability to make her laugh and make her think, sometimes at the same time. And how does she do that? And she also says that you were part of a panel on Georgia hair recently. Yes. And could Talk about the influence of um, that godmother of romance on your writing. Okay, yeah, I
1: can I can address the second half of this question much more easily than the first half because I don't you know, really know how I do it. I write, and this is what falls out. You know. um, <laughs> I do <That's>, need <laughs> I do need humor and wit. Uh, it's, you know, somewhere in there, uh, I don't like unrelieved dire end to end you know, in in a, in a story that I read or that I write. So so that's in there. Uh, Terry Pratchett is one of my favorite writers, and he deals with some profound issues uh, in his humor. So, yeah, there's no barrier there. But, yeah, Georgia Teyer, I go a long way with Heyer. I found her books in the early 70s in a remainder bookshop in Columbus, Ohio. I I had read very little romance at that time because I spent my teens reading science fiction, fantasy, and some history. She takes you to another world the way science fiction and fantasy do? Yep. So that, you know, that fell on fertile ground for me. And, uh, and of course, the storylines were great. And the humor, uh, a lot of humor and wit, intelligent humor. Uh, so all that all that was was something that I really enjoyed. Uh, i would never, I found very few other, not that I've explored deeply, uh, writers that do quite the same. Although Jennifer Cruz's work in the 90s, you know, is, uh, has got that same kind of thing going that, observation and the humor and the wit but you know totally different context in there in my in my in my writerly dna she is one of the strands i think she got a dedication in a civil campaign didn't she Oh yes well that was my regency romance in space that was straight up in the science fiction context that was a, a romance it was actually a braided novel because i had three couples yeah that was exploring a lot of the sort of higher esque romance tropes but with a very science fictional twist.
0: One of the quotes that I wanted to ask you about um, from the assassins of Thassalon is the idea that life is the greatest instance of order that exists, mm-hmm. that, we, that everything is chaos and life is order. Now, as someone who has been at home for a year and a half with mm-hmm. two teenagers, I would not be immediately in agreement that life is order. But the more I thought about it, the more I thought. Well, hang on. the The universe is chaos. I mean, even Stoic philosophers talk about how the the universe is change, mm-hmm. um, and life is the greatest instance of order that exists. So, what a mm-hmm. marriage it is between Desdemona and Penric, where Desdemona is chaos but has a life, and then another one, and then another one. Is that part of the way you can the way you perceive the theology in the world of the five gods? Or is that something that has sort of evolved into this book? Uh it's rooted
1: in my whole worldview. It's basically a biological worldview. Because if you look at you know if you look at the universe as currently understood by science, and you know, you have to watch that because they keep changing it on you when your back is turned. <laughs> um, but uh, but we have entropy. What we're talking about is not chaos but entropy. Entropy runs downhill. Uh it's you know, it's not something you can reverse. Yeah, you, know, you get, you know. Uh, things tend to disorder. Uh, that is the arrow of time. That is, you know, that is how you can tell past from future from present. Um, so it's built into the fundamental structure of the universe. But life breaks that by creating order, greater order than the chaos around it, the disorder by taking in, organizing it. But it costs, it has an energy cost, which is, you know, does not violate the laws of thermodynamics. You, you create more, shed more disorder than you create in, your, in yourself. So life as a, as a self-replicating thing and as an evolving thing is truly amazing in terms of, you know, what the universe can do. Uh, because it, it runs in its, you know, in its little local pockets. It runs counter to entropy. Uh, And there's a lot of background thinking about chaos and disorder and entropy in the five gods world that does not emerge in the stories because Penn does not have that vocabulary, but he deals with the thing all the time. So that's what's going on there. Underneath is this biological world. The the five gods themselves are evolving gods. Um, They are basically made of the souls that join them, the whole world kind of created gods. it's They are not creator gods. It's the reverse. Right. They're an emergent property of the world. Now, that's what's going on there, but you know, not in those words because uh, this is a medieval world and they don't have that vocabulary.
2: And that actually reminds me of something I think Cordelia Bukosigan says in one of her books. I think you have a saying that all true wealth is biological.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: So it's sort of a similar worldview there. Yeah, it's the same. It's the same.
0: Exactly wow. the same. Yeah. Like almost like the same person wrote them. <laughs> I know. <laughs> <laughs> My Sorry. mind is blown. <laughs> so in addition to the great and successful release of The Assassins of Thessalon, what are you are you working on anything? Is there anything next for Penrick? Or are you just enjoying the release and the cruise through this next section?
1: Yeah, well I'm Mafia. Uh, yeah, I just finished the book. Three weeks ago.
0: <laughs> I love self publishing so much. <laughs> After
1: dinner, met Mr. Creosote. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that's how I feel at this point when people ask, What's next? <laughs> I'm lying here in a heap. Um, so, first of all, I was getting it through publication. Um, because it is a self published ebook, and because it is an ebook, you can now do something you could not do before, which is correct typos that people right. find that escaped me. I swear to God, there were no typos when I turned it in. <laughs> it appeared, you know, found mom. by the sharp-eyed fans. <laughs> disp- I keep trying to beat them. You know, one day I'm going to get there, and they won't find any, and they keep finding more. <laughs> um, so fixing those becomes a post-publication chore. Well,
0: it's just chaos. You now can. It's just chaos. Chaos demons. In yeah, the yeah book. it's
1: kind of, kind of going on. Uh, there's a certain amount of PR like what I'm doing right now. Um, thank you. I do very minimal PR any anymore, but this you guys you guys got a break because I've been treating you for years. Well, thank um, you. So uh so there's that. Uh I have let myself in for judging a short story contest next month.
0: Um dun, dun, dun. for, for DragonCon. Um
1: it's in honor of Mike Resnick, whom I remember very well from. Back in Ohio, he was very kind to me when I was a newbie pro you know, coming up on the convention circuit there. So, uh, so that you know that got me for that. Uh, it's not something I normally do. Uh, so, and I'm planning to have the summer off. I, mean, I don't want to spend a summer, you know, a nice Minnesota summer sitting indoors at my desk. I did that all winter. I'm going to go outside.
2: Well,
0: that's
1: so what summer, something uh, in the fall, maybe.
0: That's what summer I in Minnesota is for. Yeah. <laughs> that and a salad made with jello and some kind of whipped cream.
1: Yeah, well, you know, it's a, there are people who are, who are into winter sports. I am not one of them. So why I live here is something of a question. <laughs> um, so yeah, yeah, maybe, but moving is so hard. Um, so I think I'm here for a while. But uh, but writing a book is a wonderful way to pass a Minnesota winter when you are not into winter sports. <laughs> Heaven knows I have time. I am rich in time. I wish I could send some of this time back to my younger self who needed it so desperately. You know, here, have six hours. I'm not doing anything with it. Nope. <laughs> you can use it, uh, but uh, but it doesn't work that way. No. So uh, so what I lack usually is not time to write, but an idea that excites me enough. You know, it has to. The minimum bar it has to get over is has to be more interesting to me than playing another round of Bubble Pop. So, that's, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so there we go. Anything that isn't more exciting than that, you know, just doesn't make it over the over the
2: hump. So speaking of, you know, getting to relax after finishing this novel, um, what are you planning to read next, or what are you reading now that you'd like to talk about? Oh,
1: gosh, uh, reading a lot of manga. If you go to my Goodreads blog, if you look up Lois mcmaster old Goodreads blog, it should come up. Uh, there's a little thing in the top bar says my books, and those are all the books that I've read and reviewed, uh, just kind of for my own interest, uh, because Goodreads makes it so easy. Oh, yes, they do. Uh, So uh, so I've got a lot of stuff there. I've been reading a lot of manga because of the eyes, um, because for some reason I can read manga and it's not a problem. Um, Whereas reading lines of print, particularly if it's small print set close together, is like not on anymore.
0: Forget it.
1: But I can read manga without the eye strain. Uh, so there's a lot of, been a lot of that lately. Uh, some of it has been a bust. Some of it has been great. I usually find manga because I've been watching the anime. Speaking of, I giving my eyes a break, and and then follow back because the anime stops, but the story goes on. And you know, okay, what really happened? I like Ben Aronovich's urban fantasy. I like Megan Whalen Turner's the Thief stories. Uh, so those are two. else have I been reading lately it's it's on the blog but the blog remembers it for me so okay
0: yeah that's what my blog does for me
1: too what did I read last month oh there it is
0: what what was that called that was that book it was pink it had a thing on the front (laughs) I think it did a thing with another thing yeah I don't remember Yeah, that would be it (laughs) yeah I don't remember so is there any manga that you've read and just thought I need to go hit people with this it's so good
1: (laughs) That's That manga is something that, you know, it's you're not going to get everybody with it because people don't, you know, don't understand. They're into it or they've never heard of it. Some favorites. Uh, there's one called Bushishi that is a favorite. Uh, it's actually, I like the anime better because it has the color and the music and the sound. It was really well done. And the uh, anime episodes exactly replicate the manga chapters, uh, which is rare. It's a wonderful story. Um, I want Penrick to be ginkgo when he grows up. <laughs> but, uh, so that, that was, but it's it's a sui generis. It's, you know, there isn't anything else like it out there. Yeah. Most of what I like is older stuff. See, I really like Tsubasa Reservoir Chronicle back in the day. Pandora Hearts turned out to be a hit. Just started on one called, uh, a friend of mine who reads this along with me is very excited about, called uh, Witch Hat Atelier.
0: I loved that. Oh, you've read it. Oh, good. Okay. I loved it
1: so much. Speaking of penrick type characters, yes, um, is very, you know, very much in that mode. Yeah, they have a type. Yeah. Uh, Bleach in parts. It's enormously long and best quantities of it have no interest for me. But there's this one character that you know that I followed in it. I'm I had to have reading way too much. Reading um, and watching So I can't really recommend it, but it had a thing going. <laughs> who else? Who else is good in that line? Oh, there's there's a ton of it.
0: Um What did you think of um the new Aronovich novella of what Abigail did that summer? Oh,
1: I just read it and I reviewed it on my blog. So it's it's up there. It was fun. I enjoyed it. Well,
0: I am so annoyed that the audiobook for that is not available in the US yet. yeah.
1: I've not yet listened to the audiobooks. I really need to start learning to listen to audiobooks because the eye issues are not gonna get better. So uh, but uh, but I have a very visual mind. I think visually, I write visually, you know, I don't remember things that I hear nearly as well as things that I see. Not yet an audiobooks consumer. But I've heard very good things about that narrator.
0: Well, the, the uh, Abigail is narrated by an actress, but hmm. the actor who reads the majority of the Peter Grant perspective books uh-huh. is phenomenal and I find that I have really good luck listening to a book that I've already read it's almost as if I hear a different part of the story than I read it it's mm-hmm. like you I'm a visual uh, I'm a visual reader I like imagine everything happening in my head um I also find that I and this is so horrible maybe this is because I've lived in the northeast of the United States for too long but everyone on an audiobook talks too slow so I crank up the speed to about 1.25 to 1.35, just mm-hmm. fast enough that my brain needs to pay attention.
1: Mm-hmm. And
0: it's almost as if a different part of the story is, is illustrated in my brain by hearing it. Um,
1: I've heard that from a lot of readers, you know, that they get, you know, they get a different experience uh, yes. from
0: the same words. Uh, yeah, same words, but heard. a completely different narrator or a completely different narrative experience. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, Catherine, is there anything you want to add? I, I, think should,
1: I should add that all of my books are out as audiobooks for those audiobook readers and listeners in your, in your audience. There, Oh, yes. They're available.
0: Yes. Grover Gardner does a wonderful job with Penrick and Desdemona. Uh-huh. Aha. And, and he even um, differentiates between the different parts of Desdemona's history in a really lovely way. Wow, well, good. Yeah, he's great.
2: I have to give that a try.
0: Yeah, I love them.
2: book girl. Well, that sounds cool. <laughs> Catherine, do you have anything you want to add? I can't think of anything. I wish I did. <laughs> no, this has been wonderful. But thank you so much for coming onto this um, podcast. Mm-hmm. And thank you, Sarah, for letting me be here too. <laughs> oh, yeah. thank you That's for good. getting out. I may, I may get over my aversion to PR if it's always
1: as easy as this.
0: <laughs> I endeavor to make this as low stress as possible. Thank you so much for doing this. And thank you for making us part of your PR tour for this book. We were both so <laughs> honored to read it. I have I have serious book hangover from this book. Like I haven't started a new book yet because I'm still just sort of reveling in the afterglow of having read it. It's wonderful. Thank you so You're much. Good. And that brings us to the end of this week's episode. Thank you to Catherine for getting up very early be part of this conversation from australia and thank you to lois mcmaster Bujold for making us one of the few stops on the pr tour for the assassins of bassalon i will have links to all of the books she talked about and if you haven't tried the penrick and desdemona series i love it so much i hope that you will give it a try i will also of course have links to the blog that she mentioned and all of the manga that she recommended as well Thank you again to our Patreon community. Recently, I asked the Patreon community for questions because I invited them to ask Amanda and me everything or anything or whatever they wanted. So the first of those two episodes will be up next week. If you would like to ask questions of me, of Amanda, of the site, whatever, and you'd like to join the Patreon community to do so, have a look at patreon.com smartbitches. I end every episode with a terrible joke and this joke is extra, extra good. This joke comes from Jamie. Jamie emailed me and said that this joke was told to them at work under the breath of a co-worker. Quote, we are both infant toddler teachers, so pretty much this is the most inappropriate place possible for this joke. Um, so yeah, it's a little not safe for work, but it's great. You ready? <clears throat> Jamie, I cannot tell you how much I appreciate this. What do you call A boat. Full of dildos and potatoes. What do you call a boat filled with dildos and potatoes? A dictatorship. (laughs) (laughs) I love the idea of just these two infant toddler teachers muttering jokes to each other. That just adds so much to the silliness. Thank you, Jamie. If you want to send me a joke, you know what to do, right? Sarah, S-A-R-A-H. at smartpitchestrashybooks.com. On behalf of everyone here, we wish you the very best of reading and a wonderful weekend. We will see you back here next week. Smart Podcast Trashy Books is part of the Frolic Podcast Network. You can find more outstanding podcasts to subscribe to at frolic.media podcasts.